Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Language. I'm Kat Davis and in each podcast we'll be looking at a new title in language and linguistics and talking to its author. Today I'm talking to Neil Smith, Emeritus Professor of Linguistics at UCL UCL, and co-author of The Signs of a Savant, Language Against the Odds. I talked to Neil about his work with Christopher. Christopher has a startling talent for language learning and that's thrown into sharper relief by his concurrent disabilities. He's autistic, he's apraxic, he's visuospatially impaired, and he's got a severely low nonverbal IQ. He's also mastered more than 20 languages and uh, keenly devours newspapers in each of these languages. So I talked to Neil about his work with Christopher, and in particular, the project which the book documents is um, Christopher's learning and experiences of, of BSL, British Sign Language. Like other languages, BSL has a full grammatical system on which its vocabulary hangs, but unlike spoken languages, it relies on physical coordination and the integration of hand shapes, arm movements, body postures and facial expressions, all of which pose problems for Christopher. So I talked with Neil about savantism, about sign language and about the mind. He details the five M's, which were um, five salient points coming out of his work with Christopher. First of all, modularity, the question of whether language is uh, separate from general intelligence. We talk about modality, about whether sign languages and spoken languages are part of the same system. We talk about memory, we talk about mind, and the fifth M is that, and and is a point which Neil is keen to emphasise, is that Christopher is not a Martian, his skills and challenges are replicated in, in other subjects, both atypical and typical. Um, so Christopher can teach us a lot about uh, linguistic abilities in the general population. Um, Neil's also led a very interesting life in linguistics. Um, he tells me about his how he fell into linguistics uh, originally, how he went to Africa and back um, studying African languages, and how he's the only author not only to have published a case study on his own son's acquisition of languages, but also his grandson's. Um, so he is a, a case studier par excellence. OK, enough of this. On with the interview. Welcome to New Books in Language. I'm Kat Davis. In each podcast, we'll be looking at a new title in language and linguistics and talking to its author. Today, I'm going to be talking to Neil Smith, Emeritus Professor of Linguistics at University College London. The book we'll be discussing with Neil today is The Signs of a Savant, Language Against the Odds. I can recommend the book very highly. Um, it's an extended case study of Neil and his colleagues' work with Christopher, um, a polyglot savant. Um, and it documents Christopher's experiences of learning British Sign Language, or BSL. Um, the book discusses um, atypical language processing, uh, the nature of sign languages, the nature of language and how it relates to mind and mental processes more widely. And I think one of the most interesting parts of the book for me was um, examining the nature of talent. And I think relative to language pathologies, we know relatively little about language talent. So I think case studies such as Christopher are valuable for many reasons, um, and not least that they add to our knowledge about what language talent is. So welcome, Neil Smith. Thank you. Thanks for being with us today, Neil. Uh, we'll come to the book shortly, but first I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Okay. I did my first degree at Cambridge in modern and medieval languages. And for that, you have to choose any five papers out of about 70. And a colleague of mine who was sharing digs with me said one day, what's linguistics? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, there's a paper called Principles of Linguistics. Let's do it together. So I agreed, and we started doing linguistics. He gave up. I got hooked. (laughs) And so after I graduated, 
I applied for various jobs, all of which turned me down. So I decided to do a PhD while I was working out what else to do with my life. So I went to University College London and did a PhD in linguistics. My PhD was actually on a West African language called Nupe. So I hitchhiked out to Nigeria or went overland by every kind of transport you can think of, cars, trains, aeroplanes, buses, dugout canoe, you name it, I went on it for some of it. And I got to the relevant part of Nigeria and studied Nupe with the Nupe speakers for a year, came back and wrote up my thesis, and on the strength of that I was given a job at the School of Oriental and African Studies as lecturer in West African languages. So I spent a couple of years at SOAS looking, trying to find people who wanted to learn Nupe or anything else with not very much success. And I found the atmosphere at SOAS rather claustrophobic and somewhat racist, to be frank. This was a long time ago. And so I decided to go to the States and work with Chomsky. So I applied for a fellowship, a Harkness Fellowship, which paid for me to go to the United States for two years with only two conditions. One condition was that I write a 10-page report at the end of my two years. The other condition was that I drive around the States for three months in the car they provided. <laughs> a few weeks before I went, I got married, and in fact our first son was born in the States, and that becomes relevant. I went to MIT first, really to work with Chomsky, but Chomsky was on sabbatical, and very fortunately, Maurice Halley took me under his wing, and because of that, I became hooked in turn on phonology. So when my son was born, I decided that I ought to study his acquisition of phonology. That was really to keep myself sane. My wife is a medical doctor, and if anything happens, and some child has to be looked after at home, it's easy for an academic to take a day off. It's not easy for a medical doctor to take a day off. Doctors mm -hmm. are important. So I used to sit and play with my son for several hours every day, making notes on the acquisition of his phonology. <coughs> that led to various invitations to talk at various sites around the country. One of them was at the Medical Research Council Cognitive Development Unit in London, which was under the leadership of Neil O'Connor, a very distinguished psychologist. And because of the talk I gave there, he and I became friends. And surprisingly, a long time later, we only met occasionally, but a long time later, I received a telephone call from Neil saying, would you like to listen to a person speaking lots of languages? And at first my heart sank and I thought, no, I don't want to listen to somebody speaking lots of languages. But because I had such great respect for Neil, I decided that I would go and listen and find out what was happening. And he had a recording of Christopher, whom I'd never heard of at that stage because there had only been one short article about Christopher. And it was indeed fascinating. And Neil said to me, really, Christopher ought to be investigated properly but he ought to be investigated by a linguist, not just by a psychologist. And anyway, I've retired. Would you like him? This is almost unprecedented. Linguists and psychologists tend to be extremely jealous of their favorite subjects. But here was a distinguished psychologist offering me what turned out to be a golden opportunity to look at a unique individual someone who is able, in virtue of his abilities, to cast light on the nature of the human mind more generally. Mm -hmm. Great. So, okay, it's really interesting. And interesting that your career started with a case study and uh, has come full circle to work with Christopher for an extended period of time on this, on this really great sort of very deep level case study now with Christopher. I've always worked happily with case studies, so... I did a, well, my first book was a grammar of Nupe, 
But the second and more important book was the acquisition of phonology when I studied my elder son. Mm-hmm. And last year I published another monograph called Acquiring Phonology, which was an account of the acquisition of phonology by his elder son. Ah. Grandson. Uh-huh. I did a cross-generational study of the, wow. my son and my grandson. I guess that sort of study is pretty rare. As far as I know, it's the only one that's ever been done. Nobody has ever looked at two generations of the same family like that before. Sure, I'd, I'd love to ask you more about that, but um, I think we better move on to uh, to talking about the book. Um, could you um, explain to us what the nature of Christopher's disability is? Christopher has all sorts of problems. He's mildly autistic. He's severely apraxic. That means he's extremely clumsy. He has poor hand-eye coordination. Because of his autism, he doesn't like making eye contact. He has no social ability. So when you come and see him, he will probably say hello, but he's very unlikely to say goodbye. If you indicate that it's the end of the session, he just gets up and walks out. He is not what one would normally regard as intelligent on standard intelligence tests. Standard intelligence tests are fairly crazy, as we can see just by looking at Christopher. So he can't play noughts and crosses because it's intellectually too demanding. He can't conserve number. So if he, you give him sets of beads on a string, two strings with the same number of beads, but one lot of beads spaced out wider than the others, he'll say there are more beads on that string than on the other string. Mm -hmm. He finds it difficult to find his way around, but despite that, he's able to read, write, translate between some 20, maybe more languages. Mm. This this isn't the first... um book that you've you've published on your work with Christopher, is it? Um, I think, was it 1995, you published The Mind of a Savant? Um, so, sorry, The sign, the Mind of a Savant, that's right. Yes. Um, so before you started the Sign Language Project, what did you know about the nature of Christopher's linguistic talent? Well, when I first came across him from Neil O'Connor, he suggested that we go and look at him together. And we delayed a few months until I found a suitable research assistant who was Ianthi Simply, because we had to get someone who was both very intelligent and very strong. It's quite difficult interacting with someone like Christopher in an extended time. So we went, the three of us went up to see Christopher together. I say went up because he lives in North Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. And we'd agreed that each of us would greet him in a different language and then run various tests to see what his linguistic ability was like. So Neil addressed him in Russian, I addressed him in Hindi, Yanthi addressed him in Greek, and we went on to test him in French and Spanish and Italian and German and a few other languages. And in every case, he responded reasonably appropriately. Not always with the kind of self-awareness that one would expect from a normal speaker. So we thought that he was quite competent in Russian, but when we asked him certain questions in Russian, he said, no, he didn't know Russian. Mm. And we were slightly surprised because Neil had addressed him in Russian and he'd answered, but he clearly indicated that he wasn't at all fluent in Russian. And that was sort of true, but having taken Russian off the list of languages that we thought he knew, I had with me, on a subsequent visit, a book of Russian short stories, which had got the English on one side and the Russian on the other side. And he asked to look at it, and so I showed him just the Russian side, without any English available, and he immediately started translating it into English. Mm. So even though he thought he couldn't speak Russian, and sometimes was less competent than one might have hoped, He didn't have the self-awareness to realize what the depth of his Russian ability was. I see, I see. And thinking about the functions of of Christopher's um, language abilities, um, does he have a desire to communicate with the speakers of the languages he's learned, or is it 
the formal properties of language which most interest him? It's the formal properties most. Mm -hmm. Communication for him consists largely in repeating and rehearsing dialogues of one sort or another. So if you met him, or if he met you perhaps I should say, his first question would be, how many languages do you speak? Mm -hmm. And if you said, how many languages do you speak? Um, <laughs> sketchy Japanese, uh, rusty French, that's about it. Then he'd address you in those languages and try and find out more about them. And right. you as a source of information. But a good indication of how uninterested he is in what's conveyed by the language came from when we went to the Netherlands on one occasion. He appeared with us on Dutch television, and because of the visit, <coughs> excuse me, he was, in, or I was interviewed by NSA Handelsblatt, a standard newspaper in Amsterdam, and gave an account of Christopher's life. This was written up in Dutch, and I was given a copy, and I showed it to Christopher next time I was with him, and he started reading it, and I was then suddenly filled with misgiving because it said at the end various things which I didn't want him to know. But he never got to the end. After reading a few lines, he translated the Dutch into various other languages, and then got bored and asked for a different book. Mm. So he wasn't even interested in an account about him. What he was interested in was the language and how it could be translated into some other language. I see. Okay, so the sort of systematic properties between languages. Yes, and it's systematic properties of a particular kind. So he's extremely good at learning new lexical items. I'm continually surprised by the breadth and depth of his knowledge of vocabulary in innumerable languages. So I said I addressed him first in Hindi. My wife's a native speaker of Hindi, so I could, I could do that with him. But he keeps coming up with lexical items in Hindi that I didn't know. And I check them, and yes, he's always right. Mm. And he's similarly extremely good when it comes to the morphology, the affixes and suffixes that you have on particular items. The things that cause second language learners most difficulty, usually. So one of the enterprises we undertook was to teach him Berber. And Berber is an extremely complicated language in terms of its grammatical structure, so it has prefixes and suffixes added simultaneously to the beginning and end of the verb. It has changes in the verb root to indicate the difference between I go, you go, she goes, and so on. And Christopher took, like, took to it like a duck to water and he was enthusiastic about learning the paradigms of Berber and worked out what they were without, without too much difficulty. Mm. So his morphology and his lexicon are superb, but his syntax tends to be rather restricted. He tends to apply English syntax to whatever language he's speaking or learning or attempting to master. Okay, and sorry, is his English syntax intact? His syntax in English is flawless. Uh -huh. He's like any other native speaker of the language, and we've tested him on every kind of construction you can think of, including the linguistically most complex, like parasitic gaps, as they're known in the, in the trade. Mm -hmm. And his reactions are always the same as native speakers, with one or two significant exceptions. He doesn't like deviations from word order of the sort that you get with topicalization or focus. So, these beans I like is for him ungrammatical and okay. Or these beans I like them is similarly ungrammatical. And he wouldn't produce those constructions. And he never produces them. Mm -hmm. okay. It's very hard eliciting spontaneous productions from him anyway. If you get him to translate or read stories or tell you something, he will come up with appropriate responses. But he doesn't initiate conversation. And it's quite difficult to find in his spontaneous speech very many examples of anything. But the tests indicate that he's got essentially flawless knowledge. The only other area of English where he is unlike the normal population 
is in so-called sequence of tense phenomena. John said Mary was ill. Mary was ill is ambiguous. It could either be was because John said is in the past tense. And so it could mean that John said that at some previous time to his speech Mary was ill. Or it could be that John said that Mary is now ill, and that's reported in the other way. And Christopher doesn't like those kinds of examples and tends to reject them. And we have some sort of explanation for that in the first book that Ian Philae published in 95. But to all intents and purposes, his English is just like that of any other native speaker. Okay, okay. Um, so if we move on to talking about um, British Sign Language or BSL, uh, which is chapter two of the book, um, why should BSL present more of a challenge to Christopher than other spoken languages he's learned? Christopher has a genius for language. That's clear from his mastery of some 20 spoken languages. He's also impaired in various respects. He's autistic, so he fails various tasks, which mean you have to attribute states of mind to other people. He can't master very many activities. His hand-eye coordination is hopeless, so hanging a cup on a hook is extremely difficult for him. He doesn't make eye contact, which I think I mentioned before. Now, mm -hmm. uh, BSL is a language like any other. Anything you can say in English, you can say in BSL and vice versa. And I discovered this somewhat to my agreeable surprise when I lectured once in Massachusetts, where there's a state law that you have to provide translation into sign language, American sign language on this occasion, if anybody requires it. And I was talking about things like information and encapsulation and complex notions in psycholinguistics. And the interpreter had no difficulty whatsoever in putting this into British Sign Language. Mm -hmm. British Sign Language, or American Sign Language, all sign languages are similar in this respect, necessitate that you make eye contact, because it's not just signs or gestures with the hands that are relevant. There's a great deal of facial action in sign, in sign languages. So you have to note the position of the eyes, the position of the eyebrows, the tension in the mouth, whether the tongue is protruding, whether particular sounds appear to be being articulated simultaneously with the signing. You have to make, take account of body posture. Everything you can think of is going to be relevant. So if, like the standard autistic person, you don't even make eye contact, you can't interpret what's being said. So the prediction we made was that Christopher would have some serious difficulty with latching on to British Sign Language because of his reluctance to engage in one of the activities that's prerequisite to understanding it, namely making eye contact. Mm -hmm. It's also the case that because of his apraxia, we predicted that he would have some considerable difficulty in signing so although he ought to be able to interpret sign once he started making eye contact and shouldn't have any serious difficulty in acquiring knowledge of the language, we would expect his performance to be seriously impaired vis-a-vis -vis that of his spoken languages simply because he's so uncoordinated that it would be difficult for him to make the fine judgments necessary in executing particular signs. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and just thinking about the practicalities of the lessons, I'll ask you about how the lessons worked later, but um, I'm just thinking back to my own language learning experiences, and uh, particularly in the early stages, I'd find um, you know, I had to make notes of this new vocabulary or the sentence constructions. And because BSL is, is multidimensional, I mean, three-dimensional, and with the added... Um, uh, facial expressions and, and body postures, etc. Is it possible to uh, write down sign language as a, as a sort of study aid? And, and did Christopher want to do that? It's possible as a research tool, <clears throat> but there's no written form of any sign language except as a research tool. There's a dictionary of British Sign Language, for instance, that gives you pictures and a coded form of representing each particular sign that you may want to make. But it's much too complex to use for everyday writing. 
And that constituted a serious problem for Christopher in that he is very keen on interacting with people to learn their language. But the main source of his knowledge for virtually all the languages that he's learned, apart from English, is the written form. So he devours books like Teach Yourself Hungarian or French in Three Months or any grammatical books of that kind. And the thing he likes looking at most is newspapers in all these different languages. And if you give him a newspaper in, say, Dutch, before you even finish reading the headlines, he'll point out that there's a typo at the bottom of column three. <laughs> And again, he's usually right when you, he makes these observations. Mm. And obviously, <clears throat> if he's reading a text in some language, he can scan it and rescan it again and again so that he can interpret it the way he wants to. Mm -hmm. With the sign language, the sign is <clears throat> transient and ephemeral, and after it's been signed, it's disappeared. And he can't rehearse it in any way. <clears throat> so that makes it more difficult for him. Sure. And one of the most significant problems that he had with sign language was the absence precisely of a written form. Okay, okay. So if we talk, talk about the, the program now, um, how did the lessons work? How many lessons were there? How often? What was the program? We gave him a standard British Sign Language course of the sort that is used in teaching any second language learner sign language. And that initial course consisted of 12 one-hour sessions spread out over a year, in fact. Mm -hmm. And these were then supplemented by interactions one-on-one -on -one with a native signer who lived in the same town as Christopher did so that he had some reinforcement of the lessons that he was going through. And the lessons concentrate on first the making of signs and basic vocabulary, then in certain problems of word order, how to indicate negation, how to ask questions, how to find your way around, how to ask people how they are, what they're, whether they're deaf or hearing, and so on. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, negation and, and agreement, I think, there. Did you design the program to focus on a specific uh, set of features of language? We concentrated on, well, we started by giving the basic course, but to investigate and test his abilities in reaction to that course, we chose a number of different areas where we thought there might be particularly fruitful predictions to be made. Mm. So I said that with regard to English, his mastery of the language was essentially perfect, except that he didn't like topicalization sentences, but that more interestingly perhaps he imposed English word order and English structure on other languages that he learned. Mm. So we wanted to look at variations in word order in British Sign Language to see if that same prediction held true for a sign language. So we looked, therefore, at word order. We looked at negation in particular, because negation in sign language is conveyed in two different ways, partly by facial action, a head shape, and partly by an actual sign. I can't sign, so I shan't try to demonstrate. My colleagues do all the signing. <laughs> um, so it's the interaction of a manual sign together with facial action that characterizes negation. <clears throat> and that interaction between the two is clearly something which gives rise to problems of coordination. Mm -hmm. We wanted to see how Christopher would do with that. We looked also at agreement and questions because, again, questions have peculiarities of word order in sign language. So typically you would ask, what did you see what? with the what <coughs> repeated at the beginning and the end. And <coughs> it's also a useful device to ask questions because asking questions of people is something that you indulge in all the time anyway. Mm -hmm. We looked at agreement because that 
is a reflex in sign language of his ability in spoken languages to have morphological concord of one sort or another. So we chose our particular domains with malice aforethought. In particular, one particular domain, the use of classifiers, is something that we concentrated on a great deal because classifiers are characteristic of sign language, but not of any of the spoken languages that Christopher knows. Right. Classifiers are devices a bit like phenomenal anaphora, pronouns, where you have a hand shape that is reminiscent of some physical characteristic of what it refers to, like something like that for a human being, or something like that kind for... A car. So, sorry, would these classifiers um, iconically represent the shape that they're conveying? Say, would it be a flat hand for a, a flat things, for example? Did it work like that? Yes. Okay. They, they latch on to perceptible physical characteristics of usually shape, orientation, size, sometimes texture of the items they refer back to. Okay. Okay. Um, and you approached the study by um, um, also teaching a control group or comparison group, um, uh, British Sign Language, in the same way as Christopher learned it. Um, who were the comparison group? <laughs> yeah, we call it a comparator group rather than a control group because you can't really control or have a control group for someone like Christopher because there are too many parameters along which he varies from the standard. Sure. So we got a group of some 40 so-called talented second language learners. These, <clears throat> these were mainly undergraduates, but some graduate students in University College London, City University, who were doing French, German or Spanish as their first degree, and were all native speakers of English, but had therefore already established that they had some considerable ability in learning a second language, because if they couldn't, they wouldn't have been able to start the course for their university degree. Mm -hmm. So we took them and they were given the same introductory BSL course, but over a shorter time period and without having the one-to-one -one backup that Christopher had. So we tried to make it as similar as possible, but we couldn't control in the psychologically ideal fashion. But it did provide us with a basis for comparison between what Christopher's abilities were and what those of an ordinary talented group would be. Mm -hmm. It was important because there's very little research on second language acquisition of British Sign Language or indeed any other sign language. So we had to provide our own norms and the comparative group constituted those norms. Okay, okay. Um, and on a general level, um, was Christopher enthusiastic about um, the lessons? I mean, we, we outlined some of the um, areas which might be more challenging for him. I mean, did he approach you with the same enthusiasm as he's done for his other languages? He was very enthusiastic. He took to it again with some facility, some enthusiasm. But he started by saying that he knew some sign language, which meant that he, it turned out that he knew how to fingerspell, or he had been exposed to fingerspelling in British Sign Language. So when you have a new word like a name, like Neil or Chris or whatever, you can spell it because there won't be a sign for it until you're part of the community. And he knew how to fingerspell, but he didn't know any signs at all. Okay. But he was keen to take to the language, and one of the conclusions that we were able to come to on the basis of Christopher was to reinforce the now standard linguistic view that British Sign Language, American Sign Language, Chinese Sign Language, all these sign languages are just as rich and entirely comparable to any spoken language in their ability to represent what you want to say or even think. Okay, sure. Um, all right, so thinking about the results now, um, where was Christopher successful in his learning? In general, he was successful. So he learned vocabulary with great facility. 
he learned the morphology to some extent within the same limits as the comparative group. So if you look at the tests that we carried out with him, we had different kinds of tests to see his mastery of negation. So tests of translation, tests of interpretation, tests of well-formedness. And in <coughs> excuse me, all those cases, Christopher performed essentially within the medium range of the comparative group. The same applies with regard to agreement phenomena. <clears throat> and again, we had different sorts of tests for agreement. So in British Sign Language, you get agreement between the verb and the subject and object. So there's mm -hmm. subject agreement and object agreement. And Christopher, again, scored towards the lower end, but within the limits defined by the comparative group. When you come to classifiers, which was the third main area that we looked at, it was clear that for the comparator group, there was no significant difference between their performance on negation, on, on agreement, and on classifiers. If they did well on one, they did well on the other. If they did poorly on one, they did poorly on the other, and so on. In Christopher's case, his performance was completely asymmetrical. His behavior on negation and agreement was fine. His behavior on classifiers was totally hopeless. That is, he seemed never to master any of the classifiers whatsoever, and his performance on the formal tests was worse than chance. So there was a twofold asymmetry, an asymmetry between him and the comparative group, and an asymmetry between his ability and in negation and agreement and his ability on classifiers. And we think that the reason why there was this ability or this inability to master classifiers was that classifiers <coughs> necessarily involve both linguistic and visuospatial abilities. And Christopher's visuospatial abilities, his kinesthetic abilities, are impaired vis-à-vis -vis his linguistic ability. And it's when you have to integrate the two that you have problems. Mm -hmm. So in sign language in general, you can use signs in three different ways, or you can use hand shapes in three different ways. One is part of the lexicon, so a particular sign might mean name, or you can use it as a syntactic device, so you point somewhere and that indicates a referent, he or she, whatever it might be. And then you can also use it for indicating topographic layout, so there's a pen on the table, there's a book on the table, and one's to the left of the other, and so on. When Christopher was learning sign language, he had no difficulty using signs as part of, or using hand gestures as part of the sign. He had no difficulty seriously with anaphora, the syntactic use of sign. But when you had to integrate that with the topographic use of sign, he was hopelessly bad. And the use of classifiers in general demands ability of a visuospatial as well as a linguistic kind, and that's where he fell down. Okay, and is that connected to um, his problems with iconicity as well? The book outlines that um, Christopher acquired non-iconic signs more readily, so um, signs which didn't um, mimic um, the act, their, their meaning. Um, contrary to the control group, who I think um, acquired those iconic signs um, more readily. Could that have a connection to his problems with classifiers? I think it could. And it's certainly very striking that when we carried out tests at the beginning of the program to see if there was any sensitivity to iconicity, all the comparative group, without exception, perform better on so-called iconic signs, signs which replicate the real-life activity. So, so, for example, yeah. um, uh, drinking might be... Drinking, uh, uh, milking a cow would be like this. And right. So imitating the action of milking a cow. Sure. Um, all the comparative group did much better on iconic signs than non-iconic signs. But Christopher did much better on non-iconic signs than iconic signs. And that is sort of unique. 
And we again think that this is because of his inability to integrate different kinds of knowledge because of an impaired central system, despite the enhanced nature of his linguistic system. So iconicity, again, is a relevant variable, but it should perhaps be emphasized that iconicity is in general not much help in first language acquisition for children learning the sign language. Because if you take milking a cow, most deaf children in suburbia have never seen a cow, let alone seen one being milked. Mm -hmm. And the same applies for, you look at the Eiffel Tower as opposed to the Blackpool Tower, which are indicated iconically by imitating the sign for a tower, which the hand configuration looks like a tower. But if you don't know what they look like, that's not much help to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and I know through teaching English for a few years, um, occasionally I'd, I'd talk to students about um, their their strategies for learning new vocabulary and new areas of the language, and occasionally they'd give me examples of, oh, you know, this word reminds me of this word in my native language, or they'd have very idiosyncratic ways of um, of remembering um, their, their knowledge. And could it be that Christopher had sort of private iconicity for some of these signs that is maybe difficult to interpret from the outside. That's certainly true and these idiosyncratic strategies uh, to remember particular items do appear to be individual, individually defined. But of course by hypothesis that becomes almost impossible to test for Christopher. Sure. Um, you can ask him and he would usually deny having anything any particular insight into what's going on, but whether that's a real characterization of his ability is not obvious, as witness his own lack of self-knowledge about his ability in Russian. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, towards the end of the book, you um, discuss Christopher in, in the wider context and how his progress in language learning overlaps with other individuals with um, similar and, and different impairments, for example, other um, students on the autistic spectrum. And, and while we're talking about iconicity, I'm, I'm thinking about Daniel Tammet, who has Asperger's syndrome, mm -hmm. um, who was markedly very good with iconic signs. Now, how do you explain that sort of dissociation with Christopher, both being on the autistic spectrum, one being good with icon iconic signs and the other not? I had some, a session with Daniel Tammet. Gary Morgan and I went to see him and investigated his linguistic ability because of his huge talent in that area as well. I think it's basically a function of intelligence. Daniel Tammet is on the autistic spectrum of Asperger's syndrome, but he can look after himself, he runs his own business, he's clearly astronomically intelligent in a way that Christopher is not. And I think he's devised strategies of a central kind which enable him to master science that Christopher was unable to do. So I will put it down to the intactness of his central system and suggest that Daniel Tammet merely has an impairment in theory of mind, whereas okay. Christopher's got impairments in other domains as well. Okay, okay. So the fact that Christopher has this low IQ and advanced language skills, I mean, this leads up to a, a major question in linguistics and in your book. Um, does this uh, low IQ advanced language skills relationship suggest that language is independent of general intelligence? I think to a certain extent it must be. So if you look at the general population, people will share their syntax or have the same syntactic ability irrespective of how intelligent or unintelligent they might appear to be according to ordinary tests. So when we did the initial batteries of tests on Christopher for the first book, many of which we ran again or extended for the second book with new data, his IQ as measured varied from 40, which is essentially a level which indicates ineducability for things like drawing, to over 120 for certain aspects of his verbal IQ, in particular his vocabulary in English. And 120 would be more than high enough 
to get you into university to study a language, for instance. So Christopher's IQ ranged from the severely subnormal, and subnormal is usually defined as below 75, to extremely high enough to do university courses. So it's impossible to give a single figure of an IQ for someone like Christopher, hence the designation as a savant, someone who's got a startling talent in the midst of a sea of inability. But nonetheless, I think it does make sense to say that in general, his nonverbal IQ is extremely low or somewhat impaired, and his verbal IQ is at least within normal limits and probably enhanced when it comes to his second language ability. So the dissociation between intelligence and language seems to be reasonably well defined. And again, if you look at the world population, most of the world speaks more than one language. Mm -hmm. You go to an African village, so when I was in my Nupe village, everybody there spoke Nupe natively. Everybody, essentially without exception, spoke some Hausa because that was the local lingua franca. Many of them were learning English. A lot of them spoke two or three other Nigerian languages spoken in the area, like Yoruba or Fulani. And that was true of all, not just the intelligent, not just those who were particularly enterprising, but to survive you had to learn all these languages, and it comes naturally. It applies closer to home. I said my wife was a native speaker of Hindi. English is actually her fourth language after three Indian languages. And again, that's a normal situation where she came from. So ability in language seems not to require particular intelligence or ability of a non-linguistic kind. So they do dissociate in interesting ways. Mm. ways which one would, <coughs> excuse me, expect on a modularity hypothesis of some kind. Right. So we think that Christopher provides evidence for what I like to think of as the four M's. So he provides evidence for modularity, that there's a faculty of language distinct from, let's say, our ability in music or our ability in folk physics or face recognition or whatever. He provides evidence for the modality independence of the language faculty. So British Sign Language and other sign languages have one modality, spoken languages have a different modality. And people seem to be able to master whichever one they're exposed to with equal facility. And Christopher's treatment of BSL just as a normal second language indicates that that's the correct characterization. We also did a lot of experiments on Christopher for looking to see what his memory was like. He has strange memory anomalies, so he recalls things better after a long delay than he does immediately. And we made various speculations about the theory of memory and what he could say for them. And more generally, he gives you an idea about the structure of mind. And so the human mind has to be compartmentalized, we said, in a modular fashion. But it also has to integrate kinesthetic information, hand-eye coordination, body position, and so on, in order to account for sign languages. And there's a fifth M that might be relevant. I think it's important to stress that Christopher is not a Martian. Mm. And we say that because there's a serious problem in using someone like Christopher as evidence for the mind in general. So Christopher was probably brain damaged at birth. And so he grew up and developed in a way that may be distinct from what happens with ordinary human beings who are not brain damaged at birth. But the fifth chapter that you referred to, where we put Christopher in a wider context, indicates that whatever abnormalities he shows in his development of sign language or other languages or intelligence tests are replicated in other subjects. So he has the same asymmetry with iconicity as one of our subjects. He has the same sort of abilities as Williams syndrome children in another domain. And we itemize half a dozen different cases 
indicating that in each one, Christopher's characteristics are not unique to him, but they do occur in other, pop other abnormal populations as well, suggesting that maybe we can justifiably use Christopher as evidence for the nature of the human being more generally. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time today, Neil. Um, I just have um, a final question, really. Is this the end of your work with Christopher, or are you continuing to work with him? I think it's the end of my work with Christopher. I've spent 20 years working with Christopher, and it's been wonderful, illuminating, and he's a delightful person to interact with. But it's a long way away, and I've retired, I retired five years ago. So although I hope other people will continue the research on Christopher, it's the end of my involvement with him, except to go and see him occasionally to make sure he's still okay. How old is Christopher now? Uh, 50. Right, okay. Okay. And are your, are your co-authors continuing to work with him? At the moment, no, but they may well. Yanathy works in Greece, and so that makes it more difficult. Gary and Bensi are both of them really occupied with DECAL, the Centre for Deafness, Cognition and Language Centre at University College London. And they, they don't really have time at the moment. But it may well be that other people will start looking at Christopher. But at the moment, we don't have plans to do so. Okay, sure. Okay, and um, I think you retired a few years ago now, but uh, are, you, are you still spending your time um, concerned with linguistic matters? Yes. When I retired, I had three projects underway, one of which was to finish the book about my grandson, and that's done. The other was to finish a book about Christopher, and that's done. And the third one was to do a book with Annabel Cormack on common educatorial grammar. And we're working on that regularly now. So for the next year or so, my research time will be preoccupied with looking at syntax, and in particular, categorical grammar, to work with her. Okay, well, thanks very much, Neil. Thanks for talking to us today, and, and thank you also for passing on your insights and innovations throughout this book and, and other work and other projects you've, uh, you've contributed. Um, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Neil Smith, co-author of The Signs of a Savant, Language Against the Odds. I'm Kat Davis, host of New Books in Language. Thanks for listening.